Well, now, after singing for 50 minutes, I preach. Oh, my goodness. Well, wasn't that choir wonderful? Yeah. Yeah, would you, uh, first of all, a huge, huge thank you to Debbie for putting us all together. She... If you all knew how many of those people singing were, that was their very first time singing. That is absolutely incredible. So it takes a lot of work to put all that together, and, and uh, they did tremendous. I hope that they will do that again. The first time is always the hardest one when you stand up in front of everybody and sing in a choir, but after that, it's all downhill, right? I mean that in a good way. It's all downhill. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. Let me just uh, read this passage, shall we, together? Mark 16, the Gospel of Mark, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. If you've never failed God, then this message is not for you. But if you've ever promised God something and then didn't follow through, or if you've ever tried to overcome some habitual sin, only to blow it repeatedly, or if you're plagued with the guilt over your sin that have defeated you time and time again, then today's message should fill you with great hope. Mark's record of the resurrection of Jesus inserts two short words that offer hope to all who have failed God. And those two words are, and Peter. And Peter. The angel at the empty tomb tells the woman, but go, tell his disciples, and Peter. Why did the angel add, and Peter? I'm sure that the risen Lord told that angel specifically to include those specific words. Yes, this is the same Peter who miserably failed and denied the Lord. The same Peter who had boasted of his allegiance to Christ, but who had failed worse than any of the other disciples had failed, with the exception of Judas. And Peter. How those words must have rang in Peter's ears when he heard that. You can be sure that the angel said those words. Peter could not have forgotten that scene. 
and the women that reported to the disciples the news of the resurrection, there was Peter, perhaps maybe even slumped in a corner, still gloomed in depression over denying his Lord three times, probably still not yet recovered. But then at the words, and Peter, he probably perked right up. What did you say? Are you sure the angel said, and Peter? Tell me again, what were those exact words? Now we know in the Gospel of Mark that Mark's Gospel is largely written under the guise of Peter. It's under Peter's direction. It's really Peter's Gospel, if you will. Mark is the one who writes. You can almost picture Mark writing, okay, go and tell the disciples. And then Peter saying, hey, don't, don't forget. He said, and Peter, don't forget that part. Remember, this is the same Mark who failed Paul on that first missionary journey. You can be sure these words are accurate. Those two short words speak volumes to us this morning that have trusted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And they should also resonate here with each one of you here today that feels the Lord working in your hearts, drawing you to him. Because those two words tell us this very simple and yet profound truth. The risen Savior offers hope to all who have ever failed God. And for Peter's life, we're going to give you three insights here today on how the risen Savior can turn failures into hope. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time in his holy word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each and every dear soul that you've brought here this morning. And I pray, Lord, that we can cling to your wonderful truth in Isaiah 55, that your word never returns to you void. Father, may it accomplish in the hearts of every person here exactly what you will. Father, I pray that hearts would be receptive, that eyes would be open, ears would be open, hearts would be open to your wonderful truth. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified in and through this entire service. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look again at verse uh, 1 in chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Jesus died on a Friday afternoon. He was buried at sunset on Friday when the Sabbath would begin. The Sabbath would have ended at sunset on Saturday. So on Saturday evening, the women went to the market to buy spices and oils to put on the body of Jesus. John's Gospel in chapter 19 tells us that they bought over 100 pounds of spices and oils. That's certainly a burial fit for a king, and it's also a great expression of love on the part of his followers. Note also that they were going to anoint the body of Jesus three days after his death, which shows the unlikelihood that they were expecting the resurrection. Remember, this is three days he's been buried and in the tomb. Verse 2 tells us again very early on that first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. John tells us that the women left for the tomb while it was still dark, but they arrive at the tomb when the sun came up on Sunday morning. 
verse 3, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? The way Mark writes this in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which really means they had been discussing it all along. How in the world are we going to move this five-ton stone out of the way? How, what, what are we going to do? There's just us women here. How are we going to do that? Usually it would take 12 men to put a stone that size over the tomb. They're wondering how they're going to get that done. Then in verse 4, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. In Israel, it was common for graves to have a heavy flat stone, again, rolled down into a groove at the mouth of the tomb. And for a small grave, 12 men were required. For a larger grave, or for a grave of one that was hewn out a little more, perhaps the grave of a wealthy person, which is what this was, it could take up to 20 men to move that stone. Matthew tells us how the stone was rolled away in Matthew 28. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now keep in mind that the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. His resurrected body has the ability to walk through walls. The stone was moved, not so Jesus could get out, but so that the disciples could get in and see the empty grave. Verse 5 then tells us, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Who is this young man? He is an angel. Luke and John record there were two angels there. In Matthew and Mark's account, they only mention the angel that speaks to them. They were amazed, it says twice. Were they amazed at the body of Jesus being missing, or were they amazed at the fact that there are two angels there at the empty grave? Maybe both. Verse 6 then tells us, And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Notice how specific the angel is. You're at the right tomb. You're looking for the right person. Who has been crucified? He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. Jesus is unlike any other leader that has ever existed. There was a man named Buddha. He died in 483 B.C. and was cremated. There was a man named Confucius. He died in 479 B.C. and was buried in the Shandong province of China. There was a man named Muhammad. He died in 632 A.D. He's buried in Medina. But if you go to Israel and you try to look for Jesus' grave, you won't find it there. He isn't there. He has risen. Finally, in verse 7, we see, But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Why is Peter mentioned by name out of all the disciples? Mark's gospel, again, is really Peter's account, and this is the only gospel that records the, end, the angel mentioning Peter by name. Let's not forget that Peter had denied the Lord three times. Three times. And Jesus knew it. But Jesus wasn't finished with Peter. Peter was forgiven. 
But Jesus still had a use for Peter. And that phrase, and Peter, shows us that the risen Savior offers hope to all who have ever failed God. Beloved, that's every one of us that's sitting in this room here today. All of us, at one time or another, have failed God. Trust me on that one. Which brings us to the first aspect of the risen Savior's hope. Number one, failure cannot separate us from God's love. Failure cannot separate us from God's love. How do I know this? Peter's failure is as bad as any failure. I don't mean to be harsh about Peter. It could have just as easily been me to tell you the truth or you. Most of us would have reacted just as badly if we were in the same situation. But believe me, I'm not criticizing Peter as if he's worse than we are. The reason we all resonate with Peter because he's exactly like we are. But it'd be hard to conceive of a way of really messing things up worse than what Peter did. First of all, let's remember, Peter has just spent three years constantly in the presence of God. Three years, every day, together. He had heard Jesus teach many times. He had seen him perform miracles again and again. He was in the inner circle of the twelve. He was part of the three He had been in the room when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. He had seen Jesus in all of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. To make matters worse, Peter knew that the last words Jesus had heard him speak were words of denial during Christ's most urgent time of need. Turn in your Bibles if... You have them here handy to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan has demanded permission to make you fall away, to make you try to stray away, to question your your profession of faith, to move away. Jesus says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you even know me. You're sitting there telling me you're going to die for me You won't even stand up for me in a crowd, not once, not twice, but three times. 
You're in Luke chapter 22. Let's move a little forward in the story to verse 54. Having arrested him, that's Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl seeking or seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, she said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I want you to just imagine what just happened. The Lord, who you just said you love and you would even die for, you just have an opportunity to just, just say, it is I. He is the Lord. But no, to save his own skin, not once, not twice, but three times, he denied him. I can't imagine what it was like to sit there and receive that stare from Jesus. It probably felt like an eternity as Jesus' piercing eyes were looking right through him to his very soul. Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. It's an awful thing to live with that memory that your last words to a loved one were not what you wanted them to be. And Peter spent a dark Saturday with the memory of the final words that he ever said to Jesus, that Jesus had ever heard him speak, were words of denying him, not once, not twice, but three times. And the text reminds us that there's no chance that Jesus didn't hear him or see him or know him, and exactly as he said it would happen, it happened. By including Peter's example in Scripture, the Lord shows us that there's hope for us even at our worst moments of failure, my friends. Some of you may know Christ as your Savior, but you've done something awful. Maybe you're ashamed to tell anyone. You feel as if you could never face the Lord or you could never face his people again or you just don't want anybody to know about this thing that you've done because it's too big. It would be crushing if everybody knew that what you did. But your failure is not worse than Peter's. And even though Peter's failure was as bad as any, Christ's love was greater than Peter's failure. Christ's love was greater than Peter's failure. And those two words, go tell the disciples and Peter, 
shows us there's no failure that you could ever do that would separate you from the love of God. Not only is there no failure that can separate us from the love of God, God's love is always greater than our failures. I want you to notice three three things about the Lord's love for Peter that apply to all of us. First of all, Christ's love knows every sinner by name. Every single one. John 3.16, we can all quote this, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But God also wants you to know and feel that He loves you individually in spite of your sin. Romans 5.8, God's demonstrated His own love toward you, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus doesn't say, hey, get your act together and then come and see me. You make sure you go and change and then come and see me. Jesus says, you come and see me and I'll change you. I'll change you. God loves people. He loves individuals. And he loves sinners that need the gospel. And He said, and Peter. And he speaks to everyone who's here today with the same individual love. If you've failed him, if you're feeling him calling you to be reconciled to him, then he is calling your name. He is calling you to himself. Eighteen years ago, sitting somewhere about there, about midway through this side over here where I always sat, the Lord was calling my and I surrendered my life about that fifth or sixth pew right back there. And it's never been the same. If you'd asked me 15 years ago what I thought I would be doing, preaching and pastoring wouldn't have made the top 1,000. But God had a different plan. Second thing I want you to know is that Christ's love deals personally and privately with every sinner. The Lord didn't embarrass Peter, did he? He didn't just sit there and go, ah, Peter, like I said, mister, three times, there you go, you loser. Peter had one time asked Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? The Pharisees had taught that you only needed to forgive three times. So Peter, on the third time after that, boom, you could just, you could, you could retaliate. So Peter thought that he would be extra good. He'd double it and then throw one in for good measure. Not three times, not four, five, six, and then an extra one, seven. He just thought he was very magnanimous. We think like Peter, all of us here. We think that if we put up with some person who's hurt us seven times, then we must be very Christ-like. But don't forget Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Does he mean that you should have a little scratch pad and go, and when you get to 490, you're like, that's it? No, he's speaking in hyperbole. He's speaking and saying, no, as long as that person keeps coming back to you, you need to keep forgiving. And that is so hard for us, isn't it? That's so hard for us to do. When we think about our own lives, we get to thinking that if we fail two or three times at a certain situation, that we can no longer be forgiven. Oh, that's it. God must have given up on us. 
He must think I'm a lost case. We give up on people who fail us, and we expect that God must give up on us as well. But notice again in verse 7 in Mark chapter 16, the angel told the women that Jesus would meet the disciples after the resurrection in Galilee, and we actually know what happened there. So turn, if you will, in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 21. Beginning in verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. And so they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he had stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging a net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come, have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to them a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Three times Peter denied. Three times Jesus forgave. No, Peter's sin was somewhat public, and so eventually the Lord restored Peter in front of the other apostles. But I want you to also know that the Lord met privately with Peter to deal with his sin in a private manner, in a personal manner, because we learn this from two verses. On the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, the disciples tell the two men from Emmaus, the Lord has risen he has really risen, and he has appeared to Simon. The other verse is in Paul's defense of the resurrection, where he states that the Lord was raised from the dead. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then the twelve. We don't know anything more about this meeting. It must have taken place sometime early on that first Easter Sunday. 
And the actual words exchanged were too intimate, perhaps, to even be included in the Bible. But in that private meeting, the Lord and Peter were reconciled. That's how each of us must deal with God. No one else can deal with God on your behalf, my friends. You must do it yourself. Third, you must privately and personally meet with the Lord. You must confess your sin directly to him, personally experience his forgiveness. He doesn't wish to embarrass you by parading your sin in front of others. If there's a need for public restoration because the sin was public, that may follow, but the primary thing is for you to meet alone with the Lord because all sin is primarily against him. And his love is such that he deals personally and privately with every sinner. So we know, number one, that there's no failure that can separate us from the love of God. Number two, we know God's love is always greater than our failures. Well, there's one more thing, too, I want you to remember. That Christ's love for you is based on grace, not merit. The Lord did not say, Peter, you really messed up badly. You're going to have to work really hard to get into good graces again. Maybe you can do some penance, or maybe you can work some overtime, or do a bunch of good deeds, or build a hospital, uh, do something there to make up for that denying me personally three times after you said you were a follower of mine. If you really try hard, Peter, and really get it together, maybe, just maybe, I'll take you back. But God's grace doesn't work that way, my friends. Penance is not a biblical concept, but God's grace is. God's grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. That means you cannot do anything to deserve it. You cannot earn it by good deeds. You cannot get more of it by extra effort. You cannot qualify it by making promises for the future. If you do anything to deserve it, then God is just simply paying for you for what you've already done. That is not grace. The only proper response you have to God's grace is to receive it. And often our human nature grates against the idea of God's grace. We like to think that we got on God's good side because he saw something a little better in us than he saw in those other rascals out there. We like to think that God somehow looked at us and said, I got to get that guy on my team. That's a misconception of who God is. Beloved, you don't deserve salvation. Neither do I. It is simply by God's grace. You could not have earned it. You could not have done enough good deeds. And your salvation is not based on a sliding scale of self-righteousness. You don't get to look at somebody else and say, I think that person's worse than me, so I'm in and you're out. That's not how God's grace works. God's grace says, come to me. Come to me. No failure, no matter how bad, 
can separate us from the risen Savior's love if we simply turn to him and receive it. The risen Savior offers eternal life and forgiveness of sins to you, no matter how badly you have failed God. But you must personally receive that offer by faith. This very moment, if you honestly turn to God in your heart and you say, Lord, I've sinned against you, and I don't deserve your mercy, and I realize that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty I deserve, I ask for your forgiveness. He will forgive all of your sin. His cleansing will sweep over you like an ocean wave. Each one of us at some time has badly failed God. Even the Apostle Paul did. He said it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came in the world to save sinners, among whom I'm foremost of all. Peter might argue with Paul about who was the biggest sinner, but neither would argue about God's amazing grace. Neither would argue about how wonderful God's amazing grace is towards all who have failed. There's not a person here, beloved, who hasn't failed God. There is no sin beyond the grace of God. No sin. All you need to do is humble yourself. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he was buried on the third day. He died on that cross for your sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. You confess your sin. You repent of it. You turn away from it and trust God to cleanse you and If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to walk up and down the aisle here. You can do what I did 18 years ago and just sit there with my head bowed, tears coming down my face, feeling like the weight of my sin had been ripped off of my body. The risen Savior offers hope to all who have ever failed God because there's no failure that can separate you from the love of God. God's love is always greater than our failures, and God's love is based on grace, not human effort. Beloved, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, I would urge you, I would beg you, surrender your life today. We're not guaranteed another day. We're not guaranteed another breath. You need to know in your heart without a doubt that you are saved. And I would trust that you would do that even in the quietness of this moment. My friends, if you're here and you know without a doubt that you are saved, then I would encourage you to live like it. Live like one with joy in their heart who knows that you have been saved and that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Live a life of hopeful expectation of the Lord's return where you will be in his presence forever. Let's bow our heads.
Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, again for your holy word. Father, it's hard for us. We're so prideful. We like to look at all the things and justify the things in our life and try to believe that we're a good person. And that if we're a good person, then God will just let us into heaven. We have our own standard, our own criteria. And even though your word reveals something completely different, in our prideful sense of self, we discard that and substitute in our own standard. We try to earn our way into heaven or do good deeds or call ourselves a good person. But your word tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. And that, Lord, we need a Savior. And that we are created to be dependent on you. And so I pray, Father, if there's one in our midst here today, perhaps like myself 18 years ago, who thinks they can think their way to God or be a good enough person to get to God, I pray, Lord, they would surrender their life. I pray they do it today. And for those, Lord, who are already your children, who've made that decision, that biggest decision they'll ever make in their life, who already know without a shred of doubt that they are your children. Father, may we live as light in the midst of darkness, not pompously, not arrogantly, not self-righteously, but as one who understands what grace is and who's constantly amazed by the grace that you showed in our lives. Father, what a joyous day this is. Thank you for the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, that you will be glorified in and throughout this entire day and every day. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.